Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on how the military decides what weapon systems it will field and the management tools for getting it done. I'm Eric Lofgren of George Mason University's Baroni Center for Government Contracting. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to share it with your colleagues and get more content by subscribing to my blog at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your active participation. And now we've got our, our main events in the afternoon. We've got two fireside chats, and we're honored to have the Honorable Miss Heidi Shu and my colleague, Mr. Shea Asai, is going to introduce her, and so I'll take it from here, Shea. Thank you very much, Jerry. It's a pleasure to be here. Before I introduce Heidi, she and I were just chatting. We would like to say something about Secretary Ashton Carter and his untimely passing. I think there was no greater innovator that ever put his feet inside the Pentagon than Ashton Carter. And that was whether it was with the workforce or technology or DIUX, you just go on and on. Heidi and I, or the Honorable Michu and I, had the pleasure of working for Ashton Carter. And I'd like us all to remember him and realize that in when he left as the Secretary of Defense, what did he focus his life on? Educating, right? And over at the Belfour School, or the Belfour, he was a Belfour Chair at Harvard School of Business, and focused on trying to promote interest amongst young people, students, to do government service. And what a great honor it was to do government service. So let's think of Ashton today just a bit. I'd like to introduce the Honorable Heidi Hsu. She is an extraordinary woman and leader. She has seen it from both sides of the aisle, right? As a technologist and engineer for a major defense company for many years, and then got to see acquisition firsthand as the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology, and of course now as the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. From my point of view and from the point of view of many, and obviously from the point of view of the Secretary and the President, there's no person more qualified to be serving in the role that she's presently serving in. Welcome, Ms. Hsu. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you, Shay. It's uh, great to uh, see a familiar face <laughs> again, and certainly interact a lot with Shay when I was in the administration back in 2010. Okay. And I do want to second what Shay talked about in terms of Dr. Ash Carter. He's one of the reasons why I came back. He actually called me up and told me, Heidi, we're in a pivotal moment in this nation. The decisions that has to be made for our future, especially in the area of S&T, it's going to change where we're going to head in the next 30 years. It is a pivotal time. Leadership is really needed. You're the perfect person for that job. So, <laughs> ooh, I feel obviously a, a real need to come back and serve. Okay, so that was one of the reasons why I decided to, uh, to leave my happy retirement, in which I was doing consulting and sitting on eight or nine different boards. But it's the idea you can make an impact 
on the future of this nation. There is no greater calling than to do that. Okay. So thank you for inviting me here, and I want to certainly want to pay my tribute to Dr. Ash Carter as well. Okay. So what am I up to? Let me share a little bit of insight in terms of what I'm up to. Shay, I was told I was giving 15 minutes. Yes, ma'am. I got to speak fast. Okay. <laughs> Actually, you can take as long as you'd like. Okay. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to gulp down the coffee right now. Okay. <laughs> so let me tell you about how I think about this space, okay, and what I am currently doing. In my mind, our decisions on our investments ought to be focused and driven by exquisite physics space, modeling, simulation, trade space, right? Tied into a campaign level modeling and simulation. So we have the ability to look at what red can be doing, what blue can be doing. So this is a live constructive type of simulation. We can literally play it out. You play red, I play blue, right? And let's go through this battle and see what happens. And then understanding the technologies we're developing, how does that change the outcome? So if it doesn't really change the outcome, the mission, do I really need this? Or should I spend my money someplace else that can give me the bigger bang for the buck? Okay. So we're doing all of that. We're doing detailed analysis, for example, on the nuclear C3. Our folks just came in and gave me a detailed briefing on here's the option. And here, based on the detailed physics, okay, out of these six different options, this is how it can play out. What's the best value you can get for your money? Then we look at what are we currently investing in, and then where else we should be investing in to accelerate our capability closure. So that is the premise of what we're trying to do, underlying premise. I will say, in terms of the radar experimentation, this, you guys probably all know radar's rapid defense experimentation reserve. What we're trying to do there is literally look at what are the joint warfighting challenges that we may have. Every service funds their own portfolio, solving their own capabilities, try to make their service as strong as possible. But we fight in a joint war, so when you get all the services together, there are missing links. So we're, so Raider is very much focused on fulfilling those missing links to enable us to better operate in a joint force in a highly contested scenario. So we've taken different scenarios, and the scenarios are chosen by SecDef. Once he blessed that scenario, we're off and running, trying to figure out who is developing what technology and have, do they already have a prototype that's close to being ready. And if they do have a prototype that's close to being ready, it can demonstrate a specific capability that we're looking for, then that's how we choose the projects. I will tell you, as part of the radar experimentation, our first sprint is the second half of FY23 because we're anticipating a CR. Which <laughs> What's new? What's new? What's new? <laughs> it's sad that we have to do that. Yeah. Okay, so that's why we're starting the second sprint. And we've laid out all the experimentation. We're in lockstep 
work very closely with all the COCOMs. We're working very closely with the joint staff because they're the one who talk about here's the joint capability we want. We take what they're looking for, we work with the COCOMs to figure out how would you operate in that particular theater, and then we look for ideas. So that's the process we're going through. So we've gone through, we literally just went through the third sprint. The third sprint just went through a DMAG at the Defense Management Action Group. This is where all the budget decision, you go up to the four-star meeting in which you're requesting funding and you basically lay out, this is why you're requesting for the money. And you go around the room, literally Air Force, Navy, Army, okay, every single COCOM gets a vote. And we got all positive votes, so this is great. So it's a, I would say, first, second, third sprint are already planned out. So that's moving forward. This is how we get rapid experimentation capabilities to be proven in a contested environment. Because the biggest fear always, you've got this great widget that works fabulously inside your lab, right? And guess what? When you take it out to a real environment, all the pitfalls shows up. So that's why we're testing it and experimenting with it. And it will be the joint staff, the COCOMs, the services evaluating to say, yeah, this is really great. It really wasn't up to par. So getting that insight for them to do the voting is going to be incredibly useful and helpful. So that's the process we're going through with Raider. The other thing, just to let you know, so National Defense Strategy, s and we're working on this document now. So hopefully by first quarter next year, we'll be releasing unclassified volume. So the public has visibility in terms of why we're investing in these technology areas. We're also planning to release a secret volume. The secret volume will give you a little bit more context as to the why perhaps netting together some of the rationale you don't say in a unclassified form. So that's what's going on, the S&T piece. I would tell you that I'm very happy that the server sitter has been reauthorized, so there's no gap for the thousands of small companies that's working hard on solving difficult problems for us. The other thing I want to emphasize to you guys is we're literally trying to dig into the details. One of the things I wanted to be able to do is get visibility. What are we investing in? 616263, how does that transition on into prototype? How does that transition into programs? Ultimately, it's got to get into a program to make an impact. I define multiple ways one can transition, so we have a common language because I found out when you ask, what's the definition of transition? Everybody has a different definition, which is amazing, right? So most people think of transitioning as you went into a program record. That's one way of transitioning. But it could be a piece of software that got into the hands of the warfighter, right? Into a system. That's a very successful transition. It could very well, you develop something that's dual use and decide to go commercial. And we buy the commercial system. That's a successful transition. We funded it, it went commercial. We're just buying a commercial off the shelf. That's also very successful. It could very well have gone to some other agency or other government, even though the DOD may not have in the near term bought it, but if it went to some other 
federal government bought it. That's successful transition as well. And the last piece I think that people don't think about, which is also very important, is you develop a technology, perhaps it's still only advanced prototype, and it needed need more funding to mature the technology so you can go over the bridge, you know, the valley of death. If you got additional funding, let's say it was a DARPA project, you finish a prototype with a 63064, and you have additional funding go to continue to mature the technology. A service picks it up to continue fund and mature the technology. That's a transition as well, because you're going to transition it. Hopefully, the next step will continue to track it. Okay? So one thing that I've asked our team to do is, look, we should not be flying blind. I should have visibility into the data. This is the 20th century, right? So our team has actually done a great job. Shay, you'll be very impressed, okay, that uh, they literally come through a ton of data. Now we have visibility to see across the services who's investing in which technology. A, a visibility we didn't have. For example, if I say I'm going to focus my investment on microelectronics, so how much are we investing in it? which service is investing in it. So now we have visibility. We also have visibility on all the supersitters as well. And now we want to tie that into the acquisition, the ANS piece. So now we can see what does this funnel look like? Because you have a lot of ideas on top, each face funnels down. What does that funnel look like? So we'll eventually get visibility into all of that, but we're on the we're on the path of getting there. One last thing I want to share with you guys. To me, partnership is extraordinarily important. And sharing information with industry is extremely important. So I welcome these type of engagement to share information. I also have a lot of roundtable discussions with smaller groups so I can get Q&A back and feedback. And I have monthly meeting with CEOs of small companies so I can get feedback from them. What are their pain points, I call it. And then I can start to tackle these pain points. And I also meet with a lot of large companies and we start a dialogue with medium-sized companies, try to make sure that they get visibility in terms of my priorities and what I'm, where I'm heading so they can steer their investment. So that's happening. The other thing that's important to note is international partnership. Boy, I've had so many international engagements. We are doing co-development on a number of projects. With the Australians, we developed SciFire, which is a air-breathing hypersonic cruise missile. That technology we developed jointly with Australians reduce the risk and transition into the Air Force for their hypersonic air launch cruise missile program this year. So it was great. We had three contractors developing, reduce the risk. Air Force able to down-select and run. So the, these are the things we're collaborating with our international partners because not every single novel idea is invented here. We want to look wide expanse to figure out as a part of integrated deterrence, how do we collaborate together to counter our adversaries? So that's absolutely the right things to do. I can tell you one other thing that I've done, which is hard thing to do, is I actually created a SAP umbrella to be able to share most sensitive information with a partner nation on specific areas we want to do co-development. That just makes sense. You can see what we've done with the Russia-Ukraine war. 
President Biden made the decision to share exquisite intel with NATO, and that built trust because they realized, oh, wow, what you guys have been saying all became true, which is better than their intel. And this is what I want to do also with the partner nations, to share information, to do co-development. So we're doing a lot of that, I can tell you, with Australia, with UK, with NATO. I have had Japan, Singapore, South Korea, Italy, Germany, Netherlands, Norway, Latvia, <laughs> Israel, you name it all want to be partners with us. All are interested in co-development, okay? So lots of bilats ongoing. So that's the positive aspect of the integrated deterrence, okay? And I wanna talk one more thing quickly. In the area of campaigning, what I'm looking at is what are the leap ahead capabilities we can develop? So I'm not in a horse race against our adversaries. That's not necessary. Just because you got a thousand tanks, that doesn't mean if I have a thousand one, I win. So that's a very linear thinking. I want to think about what are the asymmetric ways I can counter the threat. So we're looking at all the leap ahead technologies we're developing. Literally, one thing I'm doing is I'm setting up a war room my war room will be highly classified. Only a few of us are allowed to go in. But it will have the latest intel threat information. And it will also talk about what we're doing. And take a look at what are the asymmetric things we ought to be developing. So that's the war room. And I want to use that to drive the S&T strategy, as it should, cohesively. And it's going to cover from underwater to space. That's my goal. Simple little task, any questions for me? <laughs> Sounds easy. It's, it, the department is actually very fortunate in that not only does it have you leading research and engineering, it also has a great engineer leading the acquisition side of the house. And so it makes for a great team for people who have worked together in the past. And Heidi, how do you find the acquisition community are they working in a timely way when you've identified a technology that you want to move forward with? How are you communicating that over to the acquisition community so that they can move out in a manner that is sufficient from a timing point of view? Yeah, it's a great question, Che. You being building, you know how painful sometimes this process is. But I can tell you, coming into the building, I've actually had very significant impact on the palm. The area that I identify as in terms of high priority is funded. So that just means you've had an impact. The I'm very focused on the outcomes, namely focusing on what the COCOM's needs are, not just for the near-term fight, but also what we need to be ready for in the 10-year, 20-year, 30-year time frame. So from that perspective, I can tell you I engage regularly with the COCOM's understanding their needs. And I've been able to put into the palm or push them to say, hey, we need to buy 20 of this. I will tell you, for example, can't say it. This is unclassified, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Just believe me. <laughs> Oops, caught myself. <laughs> okay. We'll forget that example. <laughs> but this is, I have been able, I've been, let's just say, very successful in, in the palm discussions. Good. Trying to push things over. And the other thing is exactly like what you said. 
Bill and I know each other very well. We were both acquisition execs. He was on the Air Force side, I was on the Army side. We worked together. We collaborated together. So having the former relationship and the trust that's built in goes long ways. So there's no question when he says something to me. I'm not questioning what is his motive? What angle is he coming from? I trust him. So it's easy to collaborate and work together. Anything that bubbles up to us, a five minute of discussion, bang, it's solved. It's just so wonderful. We're absolutely, and it's wonderful also being two engineers who, who can do a mind melt, right? <laughs> <laughs> if it makes engineering sense and doesn't defy laws of physics, and it's not illegal, we should do it, right? So great relationship with Bill. Yeah, Madam Secretary, how about the DOD working relationship with Commerce as it relates to the allocation of CHIPS funding? Great discussion. Matter of fact, we've been working very closely with the Department of Commerce for well over a year to get the CHIPS and Science Act passed. A lot of dialogue and discussion went into that to get that over the last hurdle. Okay, believe me, we're all sweating tears, right? <laughs> but that went through. We're thrilled. Just yesterday, having Ellen Estevez there is fantastic as a mm -hmm. deputy to uh, Department of Commerce because he was in the DOD. He understands the DOD, and I worked with him for five years. So we have regular noontime meetings with him, and yesterday it was wonderful. That's great. He, yeah. He brought two of his lead, that's a NIST director, and his lead now for the CHIPS, and we literally had a Wonderful dialogue. This is what we're doing. If you need any help, we'll be more than happy to help you. We're a team. We, for this nation, we have to work together. Having turf war just doesn't make any sense. Our end goal is the same. We need trusted supply chain. I want to trust the component that's going into our systems. That's very simple. And uh, whichever path we need to get there, I'm happy to collaborate with whoever. Madam Secretary, we've also got a few questions from the audience, and one of them is, how are you engaging with companies that have not traditionally worked with DOD, and what can be done to bring in more entrants from the commercial world and non-traditional defense companies? There's a multitude of different ways that they can enter and work with DOD, and DIU is one of them we've talked about. They look for basically dual-use applications. They understand a problem space within a DOD, and they look into commercial world. Is there somebody who already has this product who, who can utilize this pro product to be a dual-use? I will tell you, AFWorks, Naval X, Softworks, <laughs> Army Rapid Capability, Critical Technology, they're all doing that. There are a lot of entry points into the DOD as a result. Uh, Sivers also is another entry point for non-traditional companies to enter into that. So there's a multitude of different vectors coming in, providing the innovation. You just reminded me one other thing, Shay. How do we accelerate transition? That's always the question. Um, and uh, this year we got $100 million of procurement money, which is great. So that means you can buy more rather than just... R&D, RDT, and E funding, you have procurement money. We work with all the services to figure out, are there prototypes in there that's being demonstrated in terms of capability? It's mature enough that it can go into low-rate initial production. But typical of the funding problem, this two-year gap, you got to prove to me that this works. 
then I will palm it. This is how the process works. It's a two-year palm, right? So hurry up and wait for two years. Don't die on the vine. And then we'll come back and give you a contract. It's just crazy how we do things, right? We were able to award 10 companies, $10 million. And I will tell you, just this week, I visited one of the companies, Eritate Technologies. What they were doing in terms of receiving 10 million, they were so happy. This is a small company, but the $10 million gave them, they've already obligated one third of the money, and they're pointing to the system that they're getting. They're developing a capability, a sensing system, to detect mines for underwater unmanned vehicle. It's a capability we need. So the fact that you're helping a small company to do this is fantastic. They don't have to sit there and wait for two years after they've proven out the technology. So these are the things we're doing. I wish I had a billion, <laughs> but only had 100 million. So we're <laughs> only able to help out 10 companies. But these 10 companies accelerated, accelerated capability delivery to the warfighter by two years. That's fantastic. Madam Secretary, can you comment about some of the experimentation campaigns in the services like the Army or Task Force 59 in the Navy, Project Convergence in the Army? Can you talk about those? Sure. I want to thank uh, Secretary Warmoth because she literally told the Army, you guys in your Project Convergence is going to be more joint. So they're starting to think a lot more joint rather than here's all the Army programs. How am I going to test things out? So they're taking a big leap forward thinking joint. So kudos to them. This is the first year of them doing that, right? Being a lot more joined. Task Force 59 is, uh, is something that the CENTCOMS is heavily focused on in terms of bringing commercial capabilities in, which is great. I'm going to give Navy a lot of credit for thinking out of the box. What are the tapping to the non-traditionals? What are the systems that they have developed commercially that we can tap into for our use? So that's exactly what's happening here. Madam Secretary, can you give us a view and some thoughts about the PBBE system and how you, what things that you think should be changed or sh they should be looking at? There's a problem? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there is. I think I've talked about it. The fact that uh, the budget process is a two-year process yes. and the fact that you have to exquisite knowledge of what you need and plan it out for five years out into the future. It's crazy because threats may pop up that you didn't anticipate. We need a lot more flexibility to be able to pivot. The rigid structure in which we shackle ourselves is just like tying our shoelaces together and try to run. Best description I can think of. Okay, so we trip and surprise, surprise. We need a lot more flexibility it will really help to give us some colorless money as well. Because right now, we've got a problem. We do RDT&E. Well, did you pawn for the procurement money? If you didn't pawn for procurement money, you're sitting there waiting for the procurement money, right? Why would you do things like this to yourself? Money is money. So I'm sure, I'm not sure, but somehow our adversaries may not have the same mm -hmm. type of problems as we do. The fact that they are able to move faster Right, should be a concern for this nation. So what are all the things we shackle ourselves due to all the rules and regulations, right? We ought to figure out how to create a lot more flexibility. So that's the things I'm 
pushing the PPBE process to provide us. Thank you, ma'am. I've got a question from the audience. Describe how you see applying digital engineering over the next one to five years and how that will help you and enable your strategic goals. Digital engineering is a way from the path where we're going, current step in, into the future. You want to be able to have exquisite model of your system so you know it before you even built it. And I can tell you with digital engineering, all of our major ACAT programs are going that way. So this is not going to be something you don't know how to do. I don't know who designs system nowadays without digital engineering. Having digital engineering and establishing a modular open architecture to be able to understand how can we rapidly insert hardware and software into it without, okay, I got to start all over again. You want what? You want a new update? That's going to cost you a billion dollars in a decade. We can't go down that path. It just doesn't work. So we've got to design the digital engineering. We've got to be able to literally understand, let's drop the software in every single night, right? Let's check the software. Because the commercial world can do that, so why is it we can't do it? So the DOD just needs to pivot a lot more and get with the times, right? Mm -hmm. Joe Engineer's here, get with it. Right? Madam Secretary, how successful has the cross-functional team concept been uh -huh. in tying your S&T efforts with acquisition priorities? The CFTs are a great way to get everybody on the same page. For example, R&E is the lead for 5G CFT. We're also lead for microelectronics CFT. So what we do, work with all the services and ANS and all the other organizations to make sure they know what's going on the policy folks, the acquisition folks, each of the services, they're all involved. So when we have a CFT meeting, this way everybody hears what is going on at the same time and they're involved. They know what technology we're demonstrating and if there's a transition opportunity, I look to the services to go pick it up. So that's exactly the nature of the CFT as it's constructed. I will tell you in the 5G CFT, I went to each of the undersecretaries of the services and say, hey, I need you guys to identify some folks to be part of the CFT. Because ultimately, all the stuff we're doing at different bases, you need to figure out, is this something you, your service, want? So positive thing is I have a great relationship with all the undersecretaries, and bang, I get names. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they're on the team. Madam Secretary, do we need to consolidate our innovation efforts DIAU, AFWorks, SoftWorks, to get the scale we need to accelerate innovation? I don't believe so. First of all, there's no way you're going to be able to take each service's money and say, just go to a corporate for all your innovation. <laughs> How well yeah. does that work? Yeah, that doesn't work too well. <laughs> right? Yeah. That just doesn't work, okay? Because your antibody will be popping up absolutely everywhere. You guys know that. I will say the Army trusts the other Army folks. Navy trusts their Navy folks. Air Force trusts their Air Force folks. So the way to do it is to help all of them. If you're looking for a specific capability, hey, we know somebody else. Maybe the Marines already de developed something. Army, maybe you should know about this. Okay? It's really more the sharing of information. Absolutely. Then rather say, I'm going to give one entity the sole responsibility for innovation. It's 
innovation comes from all over the place. Some of the venture capital community have criticized the Agile Procurement Fund and AppFit because only one of the 10 projects was a, uh, a yeah, I know, was a venture capital-backed <laughs> yes. process. Do you find that complaint more self-serving? Or how do you respond? I guess with the tier, we know the answer, right? I tell you, that wasn't one with the selection criteria. So who's funding it? The selection criteria literally was, what is the biggest impact this particular project has for the warfighter? That's the number one criteria, right? Number two is an innovative idea. Number three, because uh, the money constraint, I didn't want to lose the money. Can you obligate it? Do you have a contract in place that I can drop money and you can run? Three simple criteria. okay? So literally, all the services provided their ideas, and there was a big booklet of all the white papers that was written. I personally read through the two-inch thick binder. And because I want to make sure if we select a project, it isn't still early in development, because this is a procurement money. So literally, they weeded through 40 projects were proposed, and we knew we were only going to select 10. And there were 12 of them weren't mature enough. They're still in development, so they, they self-selected out. And the rest of self, we very judiciously look through what capability does this provide? So I didn't look at which state are they from, who provided them funding. I looked at what capability for the warfighter are they fulfilling? Now, I, I talked about the mine detection as being one of them from Erite, which is fantastic. The other is, is a small company that develop a, a goggle that double, more than double the field of view. You think about the special ops guy who right now has a very narrow field of view. They have to look left and right, <laughs> okay? If you more than double the field of view, that's something they really want. And it has a higher resolution and it's lighter. The special ops guy said, look, I need like over 200 of this like right now. I don't want to wait two years. So those are the things we end up selecting due to the benefit to the warfighter. So I don't know if venture capital is investing in them, but that's not my criteria. Yeah. For the first couple of years of the split between ANS and R&E was a bit rocky. Uh, having lived it, it was a bit rocky. How have you seen it? Is it coming together now in terms of a partnership? I tell you, what's the most important is leadership at the top. You have to set the example. Bill and I are in lockstep. I think having everybody else see that we intend to be in lockstep, I'm going to stay in lockstep with him every step of the way. It's a partnership because R&E developing cool stuff that never transition is of no use. So I've got to partner with him. And if you just keep upgrading legacy system, that's not too great for the future either. So we need each other. So the partnership becomes obvious. And if there's, I would say, antibodies underneath who are not willing to collaborate, if I find out things like that, undercurrents, it gets escalated up. And then Bill and I get together, we talk five minutes, bang, it's solved. That's good news. Madam Secretary, the, one of the concerns always is that when there's a transition within an administration, the first four years, the second four years, or there's a new administration, that many of the good 
ideas. Policies and ideas go by the wayside and we reinvent again. What's being done from your point of view to make sure that, look, this is an enduring process that we're putting in place? That's a great question. The first thing is make sure your organization is structured right. That's the best thing you can do. And the second thing is make sure it's a process in place so it becomes the natural things that you do. So for example, when I talked about campaign level modeling that DARPA developed for the last four or five years, they put a lot of money developing this exquisite campaign level modeling. We're tying the physics-based modeling into it, right? That's just a smart thing to do. Why wouldn't you do that? And then understanding the experimentation piece to understand what delta effect do you have on the mission just makes a lot of sense. So one thing is making sure you build a process becomes normal way you do business. For example, now that being having a seat on J-Rock is very different. One of the things that one, my organization does is support a lot of the J-Rock. So we do the analysis that goes up to the J-Rock to help make the decisions. So this is where all the elements has to tie together because you can't be in an island. Anybody who's working inside the building knows if you're an island, you're not effective. You've got to work across the entire entity to make any momentum. And then the other thing I think is absolutely critical is hire the best people you can. So I'm looking at hiring the PDs, a lot of the PDs that's coming in, highly talented folks. I'm just thrilled. So this year alone, we hire a number of new principal directors in mm -hmm. the critical technology area. So hiring the talent in and making sure that they're collaborative. That's important. Make sure they're going to work with everybody. It isn't just, hey, this is mine. Go away. I don't want to talk to you. Guess what? Your technology is not in isolation. It's the intersection of the multidiscipline that gives novel ideas, a novel solution space. So I'm making sure that they're collaborating together. You've talked about a lot of different things today. What's your top priority? So, Shay, you're asking me, out of the 14 babies you have, who's the best? <laughs> right? You've got to pick one. No, I'm not going to select one. You're all beautiful, and you're all precious, okay? <laughs> I think it's important to understand. There's critical elements within each critical areas. I didn't just come up with these critical te technology areas on a whim. I really thought seriously and deeply about each area as to how these pieces could integrally link together. For example, advanced material. Can we develop advanced materials that can handle higher temperature? That helps hypersonics. So they're interlinked. It isn't just standalone. I don't want to say I, I'm just into one, and then you will forget to focus on everything else. We'll make sure you have a vehicle big enough to fit those 14 children. Yes. <laughs> does, does, JC, does the JCIDS process need to be modernized, in your view, Mishua? Where do you see the pain points or opportunities in that process? I don't like to criticize other people's mm -hmm. responsibility. Yeah. JCIDS is really the joint staff. Yeah. I think you ought to ask them where the things they could improve on. One of the things that always I thought was a bit challenging was the length of time to define a requirement within a service. And in order to attract more commercial technologies into our space, do you believe that 
our requirements need to be a little bit malleable in terms of having a flexibility. When we talk to our battlefield commanders, many of them would say, if I had an 80% solution, I can get it next year. I'd much rather have that than wait until my grandson is now the general or commanding officer. Uh, yeah, you're 100% correct. Okay. So uh, what we're looking for is capabilities. And one thing the JROC has changed, they're looking for specific capabilities as opposed to here's a specific requirement down to the nuts and bolts that you got to design too, which is not a good way of developing, looking ahead into the future because we may constrain ourselves inadvertently that way. So I would much rather see what is the problem you're trying to solve. And then there's a multitude of different ways I can solve this problem. And hypersonics being a perfect example. Hypersonics, yeah, this is one way. There's other ways, a lot of other ways. So we need to think much more broader, much more asymmetrically. Madam Secretary, 11 of your 14 technical priority areas are commercial areas, at least. And how does that impact your efforts at all? Yeah. So. Purposely, one of the things I focus on is we ought to see what is available commercially to help us focus our investments. So that's exactly what I'm doing. So one of the things I've done is I've even gone to talk to commercial companies to say, this is what I'm looking for. You guys may be a component company designing a particular component, but let me give you my vision of what I'm looking for. And are you spending your R&D in these areas? So it was great. I've had dialogues with Microsoft. I've had dialogues with Intel. I've had dialogues with Qualcomm. So again, these are commercial companies. But if I can piggyback on their R&D, and that saves me a whole lot of money. So that's exactly what I'm doing. Get early enough into their R&D process to let them know the type of capabilities I'm looking for. Is this really easy because you're already doing this anyway? Then I can just leverage what you're designing and drop it in. So that's one way I'm working it. With regard to, I'll call it traditional defense companies. At one point in time, there was a rare, very robust communication process between engineers in government and engineers in industry as it related to the variety of IR&D projects that companies may have been through. And then we drifted away from that. Yeah. And is your community trying to reopen those communication gap, those communications with industry so, to understand what they're doing? Yeah, I would tell you the process was great in terms of gaining much better understanding of where industry is investing. And in the low-clo area, in particular, this is continued. And that's a great example in which your services all get together to say, here are the area we're investing in. They spent three days. I was on the industry side. Mm -hmm. That was happening with the government. One of the things I'm trying to do, and hopefully this will get done next year, is identify especially areas that has investment across the services. The trusted AI and autonomy being perfect example, everybody's working this area. I wanted to create a day in which each of the labs will come in and talk about this is what we're investing in from the lab's perspective and have an unclassified form so the information can be shared with industry. And then having a PMs to come in, program managers come in and say this is what we're planning as a part of our acquisition. To have that 
as a kickoff point, when I've mentioned this to companies, they love that idea. They say it will give them visibility, and then we can follow up to have one-on-one -on -one discussions. If you have some great secret sauce that you're investing in and that you want to share with us, could be have follow-up discussions that way. So we're planning that. It just, it's going to take me a little bit of time, but yeah. that's a three-day event we're planning. Have you been approached, Madam Secretary, by, I'll call it the venture capital community, in terms of trying to understand the technologies that you're interested in? They're looking for opportunities to invest in companies that mm -hmm. might have those capabilities emerging. Yeah. So I've had a couple of dialogues with venture companies, and uh, I think it, it absolutely has to be a two-way street because they know what their company is investing in and developing, and they've done their due diligence in terms of figuring why they want to invest in this company. Presumably, this company has a better secret sauce than all the other companies that they looked at. Yeah, absolutely. We're interested in understanding what companies they deem are of relevant value to us. And I've engaged, after that, I've engaged with a lot of those companies afterwards. I've had probably 75 industry engagement in a little over a year. So a lot of industry engagements, but definitely we're interested. But the other thing is you also have small businesses that's really focused on defense unique capability. I don't want to shaft them either. Some small companies are looking for the rapid growth. Give me venture capital funding so I can become a billion dollar company. Some small company I took, we're perfectly happy being a small company. We don't want to be owned by a big company or by equity firm. We love solving tough challenges. So you have different pockets. And I think I need to engage with all these different entities to make sure who has these best novel ideas. It's not one size fits all. Madam Secretary, there's a huge challenge to retaining your S&T workforce, especially with all of the pressures, not just shortages of labor across the board, yeah. but with many high-tech companies looking really capable engineers. Yes. And I've always believed that no acquisition program or system will be successful unless it has a robust engineering capability. So what is the department doing to retain and then to also recruit technology in such a challenging environment? That's a great idea, great question. Let me tell you what we're doing in the area of attracting talent. We have what's called a smart scholarship. Last year we funded 482 smart scholars and paid their tuition, either undergraduate or graduate degrees. If you're working one of the 21 STEM areas we're interested in, so we're paid for, if I pay four years of your college degree, when you graduate, you get to work in one of our DOD laboratory for four years. It's a fee for service. It's a great model. So I will tell you, I've met a couple of the smart scholars. They're thrilled, absolutely thrilled. One young woman, she's in her senior year. She was telling me she was so thrilled. First of all, she couldn't afford to go to college. Yeah. So this helped her get her degree, and she was thrilled. She told me she's already going to the Army, one of the labs, so she was telling me all about it. They were so excited, so that's wonderful. When I went to Newport News, and I met a, uh, so I was up there getting a whole se a series of briefings. One guy told me he was uh, Iraq and Afghan. 
Afghanistan veteran. He wanted to get his advanced degree, didn't have the economic means of doing that. He got a smart scholarship, got his master's and PhD. Now he is doing underwater research. And it's a win-win for both of us. If we fund these smart scholars, they come and work for us. In terms of retaining talent, I think one of the things I have found out from talking to all the companies, their attrition rates have more than doubled, tripled compared to pre-COVID. Very tough. So everybody's having the same problem. I think Amazon's hiring all of them. <laughs> they must be staying home in the pajamas and doing work on the laptops. <laughs> but I can tell you, it's one of the things that I mentioned to our to. I just spoke at Atlanta at DARPA 4 conference, in which I'm tr we're trying to attract like professors and other folks with advanced degrees into DARPA. I mentioned to them, when you come into the DOD, there is a mission that we're focused on. The technology, the research that you're focused on could save a soldier, an airman, a marine, a guardian's life. There's a purpose in terms of committing to the DOD. Probably not the same as whether you, your, the next car is coming in quick enough to pick you up to go to shopping. Very different mission. So some of the folks we track come in because they get a sense of mission and they get a sense of accomplishment. So that's what I'm trying to do in that, terms that's of... Right. You know, that you talked a little bit about the CR, and it must be very challenging to try to keep your programs with a degree of continuity in this kind of an environment. Can you talk about that a little bit, Madam Secretary? Yeah, it's always painful. We've said this a million times to the Hill, right? CRs are really painful because we're losing buying power. We plan the budget. It's already painful enough to plan for the budget. If you got CR, you froze into what you spent last year. No new starts, no ramp up in production. And you wonder, if we're in a race against China, is that the right way to shackle ourselves? Why are, why are we doing this type of thing to ourselves? It's crazy. So we're losing our buying power, and what happens is you know very well inside the building. Finally, CR ends halfway through the year, and the funding trickles down for OMB all the way down to the PM. Another six weeks, PM gets the money, and now it's April. In May time, guess what? The service starts sweeping up money. You're obviously under-obligating because you just got your money. You're just trying to award the contract. But you're behind the power curve, therefore you can't spend all the money, therefore I'm going to take half your money. It's not at all logical, but that's the current process. Thank you so much for your time. I think you can all get a very good sense that our research and engineering capabilities within the Department of Defense are in very good hands. Madam Secretary, thank you for your time. Thank it's you. been wonderful talking to you. Great to meet you. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.